Uh, so, this is Judges uh, chapter 8, uh, starting at verse 1. Now, the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. But he answered them, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Sukkoth, Give my troops some bread. They are worn out, and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Sukkoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give you bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there, he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them. But they answered as the men of Sukkoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Now Zebra and Zalmunna were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Noba and Jogbehar and attacked the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Heres. He caught a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him, and the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Sukkoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Sukkoth, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Then he asked Zeba and Zalmunna, What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, Those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his eldest son, he said, Kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword, because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zeba and Zalmunna said, Come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give you them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold 
into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. Jerubbaal, son of Jerash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his fathers, his father Joash, in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their god and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in spite of the good things he had done for them. Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal, went to his mother's sons in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jerubbaal's sons rule over you or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is related to us. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Bereth, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. And now I skip to verse 46, which is on page 253 at the very bottom of the first column. On hearing this, the citizens in the tower of Shechem went into the stronghold of the temple of Elbereth. When Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, he and all his men went up Mount Zalmon. He took an axe and cut off some branches, which he lifted to his shoulders. He ordered the men with him, quick, do whatever you have seen me do. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire with the people still inside. So all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women, also died. Next, Abimelech went to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city, had fled. They had locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and kill me, so that they can't say a woman killed him. So his servant ran him through, and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father, by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jerubbaal, came on them. 
Let me add my welcome to Dan and Pete. It's great to see you here. Keep that open on Judges chapter 8, maybe go back to the beginning of it. And uh, let me lead us in a prayer as we come to this together. Heavenly Father, we know that your word, even the tough parts of it, are a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That is, they give us illumination in dark places where we need it most. And so wherever we are this morning, whatever we feel, Lord, illuminate um, our lives, we pray, under the light of your word, that we might see clearly and respond to you um, with grace and with obedience. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. So back in um, uh, 2000, I went for a job interview at Arthur Anderson um, accountancy firm. I remember it vividly. Uh, the uh, um, Arthur Anderson's main offices then were based um, around Temple Embankment area. And as I approached the huge, great big tower, it was intimidating. I was obviously nervous. I walked into the marble kind of reception area. You can imagine what it was like with a few discreet but very expensive pieces of furniture. Everything just oozed power and prestige. And I um, asked my way to the offices, and I was taken in for a four-hour grilling of an interview, which I didn't pass. Um, but I remember a couple of years later, when I was back in London, um, working for a different firm by this stage, I um, had a chance to walk past that way. And I saw the same building, and I just walked past the straight entrance, and it was completely empty inside. There wasn't a single person working in that building anymore. It was like a ghost building within the city. If you know anything about um, the city, you'll know that Arthur Anderson were heavily embroiled and involved in the Enron scandal that hit in 2001. Back in 2001, they had global income of $8.4 billion. They were part of the big five accountancy firms, and then pretty much overnight, they descended into nothing. They never recovered. And one of the things that many people asked in the wake of that is how could that happen? And not only just how could it happen in general, but how could it happen to Arthur Anderson? Because here was a firm that had built its whole reputation on professional acumen and business integrity. Arthur Anderson, the man who founded it, by all accounts, was a man of great ethics and integrity. And so how could Arthur Anderson be embroiled such systematic um, defrauding of accounts, um, hiding billions of dollars? Um, in fake accountancy methods for Enron to justify um, their own fraud? And how could that happen within a firm that had risen to such a claim on the back of ethics and strong business practices? Of course, it's not just Arthur Anderson where you can get that sudden decline. We know it you know, across the board. I suppose you might look around at the moment at Western civilization even, at our own UK society, and you might be asking that question, how did we get to this? Not only that, but how did we get here so quickly? I know tragically of many churches that have had to do soul-searching. If they've asked that question, they've experienced great blessing under great leadership. And then one of the great tragedies is that the very leaders that have led them so fruitfully fall in some kind of public fall from grace and sin. And very quickly, as the congregation is ravaged, they leave themselves asking this question, how did it come to this? I don't know whether actually you've had periods in your life. Maybe you're there right now when you're asking the same question. Your high ideals have been dashed on the rocks of reality, and you're asking yourself the question, how did it come to this? We'll see very quickly in Judges chapters 8 through to the first part of chapter 10, that is exactly the question the Israelites are asking. As we um, look at this, wisdom would teach us something, and I, I want to say this graciously and candidly, in my experience pastorally, one of the real ironies of pastoral ministry is that often the people that I want to warn I suppose the strongest are those who are most resistant to it, 
And the people that I want to give the most assurance of grace and comfort to are the ones who feel things most keenly. Please know your own conscience. If you are by nature a hard-headed person, please prick up your ears and listen this morning, God says to you. On the other hand, if you're a person who often feels like a bruised reed, listen, of course, but don't beat yourself up on the back of this passage. Let's look, first of all, at the subtle poison of success. Chapter 8, the subtle poison of success. If you were with us two weeks ago when we were last in Judges, you would have seen that God raises up Gideon, and Gideon is a very unlikely choice. It is all set against the backdrop of seven years of oppression by the southern nation of Midian, and the oppression has got so bad that the Israelites have fled to the hills, fled to the caves. They barely come out at all. And you think, again, how did it come to this? But God raises up Gideon. Gideon is not the obvious choice at all. He's from an unlikely tribe in a weak clan, and he is the least of his family, as he says. And yet God comes to him in the person of the angel of the Lord and says to him, God is with you, mighty warrior. And of course, he doesn't feel very mighty at all. But where he is weak, God is strong, and God does use him mightily. And so as we enter chapter 8, he is on the heels of this great victory with only 300 men. He has routed the Midianites, and the Midianites are now fleeing for their lives. And Gideon is pursuing them. And then we get to chapter 8, verse 1, and we get a number of tricky situations for Gideon, this new leader, to navigate. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. The Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. Now, what's going on here is a bit of family politics. Ephraim and Manasseh are two tribes, both descending from Joseph. But Ephraim was the foremost tribe after they received the blessing of Jacob, Joseph's father. So they're effectively saying, are you usurping the family tree? Are you trying to get one up over us? Now, Gideon would be totally justified in saying, you weren't there when the moment was asked. You didn't volunteer. But he's very diplomatic. Look what he says, verse 2. What have I accomplished compared to you? See the humility? See the wisdom? A humble word turns the problem away, doesn't it? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? In other words, saying, I'm nothing in comparison to you. God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. Wisdom, grace, humility, all of the qualities you want to see in a leader. And how in just two verses it all changes. Let's read on. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread. They're worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? And does Gideon respond with wisdom and humility and grace this time? Gideon replied, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalman into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. What's going on here? Well, amidst the subtle poison of success, I want us to see the pride in Gideon's response. Do you notice that there's a subtle shift? In verse 3, he says, God gave Oreb and Zeb into your hands. In other words, he says, it's not down to me and to my success, though he would have reasons for thinking that it could be him because he's been leading the army. But of course, it's always been the Lord. Here he says, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalman into my hand. In other words, now it's down to me. You see the shift? Just that little narration shows everything that's going on in his heart. He started to believe the hype. He started to believe that it's all about him. And it goes on later, if we look forward to um, verse 9, when he gets into a similar 
type of confrontation with the men of Peniel. He says, when I return in triumph. In other words, I'm going to triumph. Me. The Lord's not even mentioned now. I will tear down this tower. Pride. It has been the stumbling block of so many leaders who start off well, who can't believe the initial situation that the Lord is granting them fruitfulness and success, who pray like nothing on earth in the days when they feel exposed. And the Lord blesses that. And then so quickly that little voice comes along and whispers in the ear, you're doing really well. It's all down to you. Great job. And then so quickly you stop praying to the Lord, you stop depending on the Lord, pride rears its ugly head. Notice that he still continues to have success. He does capture the remaining Midianites and rout their army in verse 12. But look at what he also does. He goes back to the men of Sukkoth and he exacts vengeance, and it is ugly. Verse 16, he took the elders of the town and taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars, whipping them with thorns. Verse 17, he then goes to Peniel and he pulls down a tower and commits a form of genocide and kills the men of the town. Finally, to complete the set, and his ugliest of all probably, he kills Zeba and Zalmunna, the leaders, but only after he's first asked his eldest son, who's but a child, to do his dirty work for him first. And of course, one can only think of the impact this is going to have on his children. And it's all happened in the same day. How quickly we fall. Dare I say, this is what pride does, and it's not just Gideon, of course. The Bible is littered with men, and yes, it usually is men, unfortunately. So men, please prick up your ears, who fall into pride. David, great military success. And it's after that success when he's sitting in the palace, surveying his kingdom, actually now miles away from the battles that he used to fight, but he's no longer going in the battles, that he spies Bathsheba, calls her for dinner, commits adultery with her, and then to cover up his sin, kills her husband Uriah. Uzziah is a king reigning over Israel, probably the king who reigned over Israel at the time of greatest political expansion and greatest economic expansion. And yet he starts to believe his own press, and so he tries to take on the prerogatives of the temple priests, and the Lord judges him by striking him with leprosy, and he can never appear in public ever again. Peter in the New Testament, before Jesus goes to the cross, what does he say in pride? Even if all others desert you, I will not desert you. I'm different to them. And he denies him three times. And we all know the story. This is what pride does. This is why pride is so fatal. Pride stops us looking up to God and stops us looking out. And as Augustine and the theologian Martin Luther called it, it turns us in on ourselves. Incovatus in se in Latin. And of course, the problem is when you are turned in on yourself and you become so self-obsessed, it's all about me and what I'm doing. Pride comes before a fall because you can't see the stumbling blocks in your path because you're not looking forward. You're looking in. Pride is so foolish. Pride is so ugly. Pride often results on the back of success as we believe the hype and stop depending on God. Not just pride, though, I also want us to see the idolatry that goes on here. Look at verses 22 and following. The Israelites here say to Gideon, rule over us, you, your sons and your grandsons, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And again, it seems that Gideon responds well. Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. In other words, he's saying, don't desire a king. The Lord needs to be your king. And this is going to be a big theme in Scripture as we go forward into 1 Samuel. And again, it looks like a godly response. 
but how quickly he falls for the familiar idols of money, sex, and power. Do you see how money happens, first of all? Verse 24, he says, I do have one request. Each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. Seems like a small request, doesn't it? Until you see what comes out of it. Verse 26, the weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels or 20 kilograms. I did a quick bit of totting up at um, current gold prices. That's just shy of a million pounds, but there's also more wealth there. So he gets over a million pounds just by that small little gesture. Just give me a couple of earrings. He wants to be paid off. Money. Power. There's particular significance in Gideon making an effort. Here, Gideon is combining, he's consolidating power. He's combining the office of the priest for spiritual guidance with his office as a judge, which is civic guidance and rule. He's saying, let's bring those two power centers together. So they're all under me. And he puts them in his own hometown at Ophrah. And so makes this ephod as the way of doing it. Again, he thinks power is best wielded by me. I'm the best leader, so I'll wield it. The idol of power. And then sex Look at verse 29. Gideon, Jeroboam, that is, son of Josh, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. Always in Scripture, it is very clear. Scripture says that there should be one man with one woman. That's marriage. Anyone who does anything out of that, you always see Scripture pointing out the ugly consequences. And he even has a concubine, verse 31. Not only many wives, a harem to try to match the kings around, but he gets a concubine in Shechem who bears him a son, whom he named Abimelech, and we will see in chapter 9 the devastation that Abimelech, his son out of wedlock, leaves behind him. You see the familiar idols there. They come quick, don't they? Money, power, sex. And why are they such familiar idols? Because they have always had a grip on us as human beings. Now, of course, I want to be clear. Money, sex, and power are not bad things in and of themselves. They are good things. They are gifts given by God for us to enjoy in a proper relationship with God but they have such a captivating influence on our hearts that they can so often be used for ill ends, for ill means. And so often we take those and we make them of ultimate significance in our lives. We say, I must have money. I must have sex. I must have power. And when we start to have that kind of narrative, they've become our idols and they lead us astray. And so they lead Gideon astray. All on the heels of success again, because those are normally the times where you think, I can relax, I can enjoy some of these things. The narrative comes to us again. I've earned it. It's been a hard year. Why not? You can smell the sulfur all over that, can't you? And finally, lip service. What I mean by lip service is that whilst Gideon continues to use the name of the Lord and God, he continues to talk about him, I imagine he probably continues to worship him and pray to him. God stops being a functional reality in his life. That is, God stops ruling his life. And the text makes this very clear in a subtle but brilliant way. There's a literary device that throughout chapter 7, God is mentioned all the time doing the action. So don't look it up, but let me just give you some references. Chapter 7, verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon. Chapter 7, verse 5, the Lord told Gideon. Chapter 7, verse 7, the Lord said to Gideon. Chapter 7, verse 15, the Lord gave the Midianite camp into Gideon's hands. In total, nine times God drives the action forward in chapter 7 to make it really clear that the Lord is doing it, God is doing it, not Gideon. In chapter 8, God doesn't do anything. He's not mentioned at all, apart from when he's invoked by Gideon as kind of lip service. So look at chapter 8, verse 7. Gideon replied, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmona, it has the appearance of godliness, doesn't it? 
but in the context of a sentence where he's saying, I will tear your flesh, which has nothing to do with God at all. It's ugly vengeance. Chapter 8, verse 19. Look down. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother, as surely as the Lord lives. Oh, it sounds so godly. If you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Ugly vengeance again. He's still invoking the name of the Lord as though God has got anything to do with vengeance ever. And chapter 8, verse 23, he seems to make such a godly decree. The Lord will rule over you. In other words, he seems to be saying, don't make me king, make God your king. How godly. But then a few sentences later, he's consolidating power. He's committing idolatry. He's usurping the whole authority of the temple priests. Do you see how subtle it is? We can, we can continue to talk about God whilst actually actively turning our back on God. We can continue to read God's word, even preach sermons from God. I know leaders in the church who up to the very day when they fell from grace were preaching sermons about grace. That is perhaps the supreme irony of the human heart. And you know this if you know your own heart. You can read your Bible in the morning, you can pray to God, and then you can go and commit the most outrageous sins later on that are completely hypocritical. Where does that duality, that night and day, come from in the human heart? We must be warned by this. Pride, idolatry, lip service. These are the familiar trappings, particularly for leaders, and I've been preaching this to myself this week, so do pray for me and Mark and the others on this. But they are familiar problems for all of us, aren't they? And again, these errors all have one thing in common. They all come on the back of success. And dare I say, therefore, just as a church family, praise be to God, things are going quite well at the moment. And so the Lord wisely says to us, when you think things are going well, watch out. This is a word in season for us. Turn with me forwards. Keep a finger in chapter 8. Turn with me forwards to 1 Corinthians 10 on page 1151. I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 12. If you'll forgive me, I'm going to read the whole thing because I think it's so significant. This is what God wants to say to us from this passage in Judges, I believe. 1 Corinthians 10 on page 1151. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. In other words, they were believers. They knew the Lord. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful. Be careful that you don't fall. We need to hear the warning. 
distinguished preacher Dr. Howard used to be a very forthright preacher in Australia on sin. A few members of his congregation didn't like him being quite so forthright, and after one of his sermons, a member of his congregation came up to him and said, Dr. Howard, if you wouldn't mind not preaching so much on sin, we don't enjoy it. He took that person to a cupboard in the church where there was a bottle of rat poison, and it said, danger, poison, keep away from children. He said, would you want me to change the label on this poison to essence of peppermint oil and to put it in the food cupboard? He said, the more mediocre and not shocking that the warning on the label is, the more dangerous the poison becomes. If you find this passage shocking, and it is, heed the warning. It is saying, keep off, don't go there. If you are going there right now, talk to someone, bring it into the light, pray to someone, and do pray for us as your leaders that the Lord would protect us. We must heed the warning, the subtle poison of success. Secondly, and more briefly, the swift slide away from God. I want you to notice as we come to chapter 9 just how very quickly this slide happens. Abimelech is just one generation after Gideon. He's Gideon's own son, and straight away he grabs the reins of power and commits evil. He uses money given to him from the people of Shechem to buy a violent militia and to round up his brothers who were a threat to his power and to savagely murder them. But what is equally shocking is how quickly the Israelites who had followed Gideon don't object to this, they follow Abimelech. Look at chapter 9, verse 6. All the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. In other words, these are the people who've just been following Gideon, and Abimelech has just committed a most atrocious murder of these people, ugly and gruesome in the extreme. And they don't protest, they crown him king. It seems like they take the initiative here. There's no arguing, no disputing, there's no consultation of the Lord, no crying out to the Lord. And even when Jotham, who's the only one who escapes, manages to draw their attention to it, giving a rather obscure parable that we didn't have time to read about the trees, but it's a pretty plain parable where he's basically calling Abimelech a thorn bush and saying, be very careful of what happens when you put a thorn bush in charge of your country. They don't object then. In fact, the only time they do give any resistance to Abimelech is in verse 25. And look what they're doing in verse 25. We finally get the words, in opposition to him, to Abimelech. These citizens of Shechem set men on the hilltops. What to do what? To ambush and rob everyone who passed by. The only reason they're opposing him is they're saying, we think we should have the money now. So they're trying to outdo him for criminality. They don't oppose him on the basis of any principles at all. Now, how has this happened within just a few years? Gideon, for most of his reign, was a godly leader. There's a balanced estimation of him. He was a man with sin. He fell in some very obvious sins. But he did still follow the Lord. And yet, so quickly, this has happened. And we should be shocked by the speed at which these things can come about. And look at chapter 8, verse 28. This is the last time we get this phrase in the whole book of Judges. The land had peace for 40 years. We will never again in the book of Judges get the phrase, the land had peace, because now the slide into depravity and evil has gone far enough that there will be no peace for those in the time of the Judges. It happens so quickly. Secondly, do you notice, it doesn't happen outside of Gideon's family, it happens inside Gideon's family. 
Abimelech is the son of Gideon, and of course, the link with the concubine of Shechem is supposed to be very obvious. But not only that, in Jotham's parable, Abimelech is described as a thorn bush. Does that ring any bells for you? Of course it does, because what do we see Gideon doing with a thorn bush? We see him turning it into a bunch of whips and whipping people. In other words, it runs in the family line, that type of behavior. Abimelech might well have learned it from Gideon. He might well have seen it, and as the story got told down of the ages, that was a story of great power and great strength. Oh, how he pulled those men into line. And Abimelech thinks, I'll be like that. I'll be overstated and vengeful. I'll be proud and idolatrous. I learned it from my father. Again, for me as a father, <laughs> if this doesn't make me pray, nothing will. The fear <laughs> that I could pass my sin on to my children. Actually, as a church leader, the fear that I could pass my sin on to you as a church family, if that doesn't make me pray, then I have the most stubborn of hearts. No, we need to pray that the Lord would have a restraining hand on sin so that the sin of one generation is not passed on to the next. But we're supposed to see here that it is if the Lord doesn't intervene. And finally, the problem is not from without, but from within. So far in Judges, the surface-level problems have always been from without. The enemies are outside. The enemies are outside. But look at what we didn't have time to read, chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. After the time of Abimelech, a man of Issachar named Tola, son of Puah, the son of Dodo, rose to save Israel. Question, rose to save Israel from whom or from what? Every time we've had someone raised up to save Israel in Judges so far, it's from an external threat. Rose to save Israel from the Midianites. Rose to save Israel from external oppressors. Rose to save Israel from whom or from what is the question here. From itself. The worst enemy we can face is the enemy within. All other enemies you can flee from. Not the enemy within. And I think we're supposed to see at this point in Judges where the real problem lies. We can rail, and we're good at it, you know we are. The press make lots of money out of it. We can rail about the problems out there, the thems of this world. We can convince ourselves that if only circumstances were better, my life would be wonderful. Haven't you ever had one of those moments in your life when circumstances have been just fine, and you ruin it? You ruin it? Because the problem is within. The enemy is within. And so God here raises up Tullah to save Israel from itself. What God is showing us here is that he wants us to see that the enemy is within, and therefore if you have any lingering hopes that you could be your own savior, God wants to end them now. How can you save yourself when you are the problem in the nicest possible way? And I don't say it to offend you. But if there is a way to getting better, it lies in taking a full account of the worst. And my friends, sometimes we are the worst. And ultimately, this is pointing us to the one who comes to intervene and save us from the enemy within totally. Tola works for a time, 23 years, then he died and they descend into problems again. But Jesus doesn't wait for us to sort ourselves out. He doesn't wait for us to cleanse ourselves. He doesn't wait for us to morally improve ourselves and try to save ourselves. He knows we can't. He tells us plainly that sin lies in our hearts and who can change their own hearts? No one can. Left to ourselves, we all tend to pride. We all tend to the idols of money, sex, and power, and many other idols as well. We all drink the subtle poison of success. Left to ourselves, no matter how we start out in the Christian life, 
If it was just down to us, we would not end well in the Christian life. But Jesus comes, and he comes to save us, and he comes to give us new hearts by the Spirit, to drive out the enemy within. He is the ultimate deliverer from the enemy of sin, the enemy within. As it says in Romans 5, 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian thinker, argues that most Christians only get half of God's grace. What does he mean by that? Well, he says most Christians get that God comes to forgive them at the cross. We get that. We see God's grace there, but that's only half of it. The other half of God's grace is God's sanctifying, changing grace. It is the work of God by the Spirit and the heart of the believer to change you, to deal with the enemy within. You can't deal with it yourself. That doesn't mean you give up the fight. It means you fight in the Lord's strength. The Lord has given you the resources as a New Testament believer to fight that fight and to win that fight, but never in your own strength. If the road looks bleak, it is bleak in and of its own strength. But where there is no light, the Lord brings light by the Holy Spirit, the one who empowers you and who overcomes sin and breaks the power of sin in your life. If you are looking within your heart and you're saying, I can't do it, that is good. You can't do it. But where you fail, God will succeed. Do you believe that? You can't fight the enemy within and win, but God can. Gideon should have got that because God always was the one who was at work. And Gideon's greatest failure was he stopped relying on God. Let us not be like Gideon in that regard. So here's the punchline. Grace not only to save you, but grace to change you. Grace not only to deal with the consequence of sin, but grace to subdue sin in your life. That is the hope that we need. How do we do that? Well, we don't let go and let God. We fix our hearts and our minds on God. Let me end by quoting from Dallas Willard on a chapter on living in the vision of God, how to avoid the slide into sin. He says this, the love of God and only the love of God secures the vision of God, keeps God constantly before our mind. Thomas Watson tells us that the first fruit of love is the musing of mind upon God. He who is in love his thoughts are ever upon the object of that love. He who loves God is ravished and transported with the contemplation of God. God is the treasure, and where the treasure is, there is the heart. King David, yes, King David, gives us the secret of his life. I keep the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. With him, I shall not be moved. Let's pause and let's just have a moment of quiet to reflect on what the Holy Spirit is saying to us this morning. Let's just keep a moment of quiet and ask God to search your heart, to search your lives, and to say what he wants to say to you. And then I'll lead us in a brief prayer before Dan comes up. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Heavenly Father, in and of ourselves, we will fall. That is a certainty. But with you and with the work of the Spirit in our lives, then you can keep us. So where we are weak, please, Lord, show yourself to be strong. Protect us from ourselves, from the very sin within. Drive it out. Help us to bring it into the light. Help us to rely totally on you and to fight the good fight of faith, to live in the grace of God. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.